Pod here. Welcome to the end of season two wrap up episode. Who would have thought this has gone so fast? I can't believe how fast 2021 is going. It only seems like five minutes ago since we interviewed Helen Sunis as the opening episode to this season. I look forward to bringing you some of the highlights, some of the summaries and some of the interviews over the course of this episode. But before we go there, can I ask you a favor? It has been really lovely receiving lots of emails, messages on, on different platforms on how much this podcast is being appreciated, how many people share it amongst their friends and colleagues, indeed, people letting us know how they use some of the reflections at the end of every episode. That is very much appreciated. The favor I'm asking is, can you pause and jump over to Apple and leave a five-star review on the Apple platform? Yes, the smart ones amongst you will have detected that's actually two requests. One is to pause, and one is to leave a five-star review. Why five-star? Well, I'm cheekily asking that because what we have realized as our learning on how podcasting and algorithms actually work, the more reviews and the more five-star reviews there are on Apple, the higher in the overall rankings that it becomes, and the more likely it is to show up in someone's feed who hasn't heard of this podcast. So if you could do that, that would be very appreciated. Hit it! I have a dream. That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. We shall never surrender. It, it's an interesting question, Pod, and something I've thought a lot about. It's about listening. It's about talking to the experts for me and bringing people together around ideas. I'd let John Fairfax down, a person of faith. I felt like I'd let God down. I realized that I wasn't probably as proficient in in feedback as I needed to be. So my only choice was to develop, right? right? And that's where I think I started to realize, well, this works. Maybe this actually works better. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to The Leadership Diet. I interview leaders and experts about ways to optimize leadership. What are useful habits and thinking patterns? What are the secrets to high-performing teams? And how do they continue to nurture their effectiveness day after day? In other words... What is our leadership diet? So season two started out in January of this year, and we have interviewed 15 leaders so far, and we're pausing this to catch up on some of those learnings, some of those insights, some of the highlights, and give a few summaries in this episode here. I'm looking at a range of ideas, curiosity and how that enables different things, including innovation and careers looking at international leadership and some of the learnings and insights from being an expat leader, leadership transitions in general, the impact from moving from one role to the other and how that level of leadership might need to change is an idea that had emerged a few different times over the course of this season. How teams change their identity and move from one level of leadership to a different kind is another topic that comes up. We have a whole load of personal learnings. I'm going to be talking about arrogance, reputational trauma, which comes out of humility or humiliation even, fear and how that looks like, and different types of feedback and why curiosity is the antidote to judgment. We're going to look at failure and indeed what we can take from failure. And lastly, we're going to look at the idea of practices and different practices leaders have shared with us along the way. So the first one I'm going to talk about today is curiosity. That's a topic that comes up almost every episode. Leaders talking about how they have cultivated a sense of curiosity. And the first person we're going to hear from here is Helen Sunis, who is the CEO of RMIT Online. And in this little clip, she shares with us how she has used curiosity to drive not just her career forward, but the range of different organizations that she has been a leader in. I've had a career of making a lot of lateral moves, you know, law, marketing, product, strategy. And the benefit of that, I've loved picking up different skills in different functional areas. But the other benefit is you actually never become an expert. (laughs) I I have no reliance on expertise. I've moved industries. I'm I'm constantly in learning mode. And maybe that's a freedom because I I don't need to hold on to expertise. It's about listening. It's about talking to the experts for me and bringing people together around ideas and and opportunities, seeing white space and markets and and grabbing it. doesn't matter the market to me. Um, It's about, you know, listening, testing, driving into white space and markets. So 
Yeah, I have the benefit of no expertise. <laughs> 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 Do you want to stop the interview now? <laughs> well, I think what you have given us, though, is an absolute beautiful insight into the mind of an innovator, which is to start with a hypothesis, look for mm. white space in a the market, then yeah. go, go, to use your phrase, find the taillights from other markets or other people, start experimenting, learn quick, and away you go. That, that, that's, if I break it down to what you said, that's, that's the set of expertise in, in itself. And then you've, yeah. you've brought in a, a skill set of listening and learning uh, alongside that. Yeah. Yeah. That, that would be the one that would be the expertise. You know, I often get asked, how have I made so, such dramatic changes of industry? And I'm like, for me, what I do is always the same. <laughs> Which is what? <laughs> Which is spot talented people. Spot the thing they're talented in, give them free reign in that, bring them together, galvanize them around a higher purpose. That's what I do. Alice Condolian has spent his life in the healthcare and in the broader pharmaceutical industries. And as he says on paper, some of the roles he has had should never have taken place. Yet his innate sense of curiosity has allowed him to try different things, move to different countries, change roles change responsibilities, and always look to have something interesting to do. He said his career has never been about an end destination, but an overall experience. And his learning along the way is that curiosity and networks can drive a most interesting and fruitful experience. What this move has highlighted for me again is your ability to jump sideways or or adapt into a very different environment. When you pause, Alex, and look back at the career moves that you've made and the tangential and adjacent jumps that you've made, which on paper shouldn't really happen, but you've done them really well, (laughs) what is it about the way you think or the skills you've developed that have allowed you to do that? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Firstly, I honestly am just driven by my own sense of like curiosity and wanting to stretch myself. So if we come back to the why, why have I pursued a slightly atypical career path? Why do I think I've still got a few more pivots in me before I get to the end of my career path? Um, I, I genuinely think that that is just innate in what drives me. I don't think I'm someone who, for me, my career goal is probably not an endpoint. It's like an experience, right? Right. And and the experience has to be a constant learning and challenging journey. And if I can have that, then I'm fulfilled. So I think that's what's driving me. I think that when I think about the how, I think a few things I've learned over over time. (laughs) Number one is that mentors and sponsors have been absolutely critical for me to have had the career experience and career path that I've had. And you're never quite sure about who's your sponsor, but you discover who your sponsor is. And usually, you know, if you keep that relationship good, right, they will continue to be great sponsors. In fact, I would look back over my career and I'd probably say, I think I've had three sponsors my whole career. Right. And I would say I would consider those people, even though they've all moved on from the company I'm with now, I would consider them people who would still have my vested interest at heart if and when I have to reach out to them. So I think that, you know, sponsors are really key. Hmm. As I've been getting to key decision points, I also have what I almost think of as my own little personal advisory board of mentors, (laughs) you know, a standard four or five people who I'll ping and who I just will bounce ideas off. And it's not only that I think that I can trust the advice they give me, it's that I think those four or five people have my interests at heart. Yeah, There's no conflicted agenda there. It's just my interests. And that's been really powerful. And then I'd add probably two more thoughts in as well. Number one is networking is key especially if you want to do something which is not typical. Yeah. But you can't only call on your network at your critical moment of need. Your network needs to have been an investment in time and effort and energy and support that you're giving to your network just as much as vice versa. And I think I've learned that in my later moves, right, that I got caught out 
when I had not invested in my network early enough. Right. And now I double down on my investment in network. And it's like an invisible capability that mm-hmm. pays dividends multifold, but you're never quite sure when, you're never quite sure how, but it will pay off. This is an international podcast in the sense that we talk to leaders from all over the world about their experiences and their learnings of leadership along the way. With that, the idea of taking roles as an expatriate leader or a foreigner in charge of a different country is a regular topic and a source of great learning. Rachel Frisberg is currently the head of Asia Pacific for Roche International, part of the Roche Hoffman Healthcare Group, the largest healthcare organization in the world. In this conversation, she shared her first expatriate experience when she moved from England to France. But it wasn't just a skip across the water. It was moving from a national role to an international-based role. And on the international team that she was a member of, she was the only non-national, French national, that is, on the team. So you're changing culture, but you're also changing your own geographic span and commercial right. span at the same time for the first time. So exactly some some big transitions there for you yeah so when you look back now what are some of the mistakes that you might smile on to go you know i stepped into that landmine or i made that mistake in my naivety or in my learning in my early days yeah i i think you know some of it came from i think initially particularly in the the earlier days not having so much of formal leadership framework you know so a lot of it was you're leading from probably gut instinct and on a very light framework, as I say, as to what makes sense from a leadership perspective. So I think there were many things that, you know, maybe some assumptions around cultures, around, you know, what's important to people, around what motivates people and so on. And there was nothing that was like, I guess, you know, because I was still um, not in so much of a senior position, so they weren't big, massive mistakes. Mm-hmm. But I think for me, one of the things I, I did learn in that organization to a part at that particular time was how I didn't want to lead. Okay. And the, and the reason I say that is because at that particular time and and leadership was maybe very much that way around gosh, about 15, 16 years ago, was very hierarchical. Mm -hmm. And I actually saw some leadership behaviors that I felt were very directing, very controlling, in a way, sometimes, you know, disrespectful when people didn't live up to the expectation. And And it really, truly taught me that, for me, that was not what leadership would be about. And sometimes, in a way, when you have those lessons, it really goes deep. And, yeah. and it's also good sometimes to realize, yeah, how you don't want to lead at the same time as how you do want to lead. Do you remember the impact on either you or the people around you of the leaders who are leading through those very directive, very strong, maybe even autocratic type of styles? Fear is right. the word that actually comes to mind. <laughs> you um, didn't hesitate. <laughs> yeah. So fear, mm-hmm. the, the the concern of getting it wrong, you know, of, of what will happen if I if I don't share the right strategy or if I'm not clear enough in my communication or or whatever. But I, I think that that was probably the key thing. Lance Little is also the head of an Asia-Pacific organization, in this case, Roche Diagnostics, the largest healthcare diagnostic company in the world. In this conversation, Lance shared with us his first expatriate experience, moving from New Zealand to Thailand within the same organization and how his previous GM had got him ready for that transition. But his major learning was not so much about how to lead in a different affiliate for the same organization in a different country, but how to think at a society level. In this conversation, he shares with us the idea of selling the same equipment is easy around the world, but business is done through different lenses. And one of his learnings has been, how do I think, or at least how do I try to understand what it's like to be an executive in Thailand and work in that country? And why is that so different to India, Korea, or even New Zealand? So when you look around, let's just say the Asia-Pacific region, because that's the region you know really well. On a a global scale, you would argue that a lot of countries in Asia-Pacific have handled COVID quite well in the sense Mm -hmm. of minimizing infection and mitigating against economic impact. Mm -hmm. What's been your observation of countries who have done well relative to countries who have not done as well? 
Look, there's a lot of moving parts to, to answer that question, Pot, and I don't claim to have the, the recipe of how to manage this. But I think observing what, what some countries have done, I think, first of all, understand, well, looking at how strong your base healthcare system is, are you able to get healthcare to all of the population for a start, right? So is there a foundational strength to healthcare systems? Many there are, some there are not, and COVID has highlighted that weakness. So I I think that's one key element. Decision-making by the people in control, whether that's at a government level, a central government level, or a federal government level, is critical. And I think the countries that seem to have done better are those that have had a coordinated approach, where the decision-making was being taken for the entire country, and then there's a level of consistency around that. And I think the other thing that we see in Asia particularly is experience. So many of the Asian countries went through SARS and MERS, and so they were geared up. They knew that another one is going to come. I don't think anybody imagined it would be of the scale that COVID has been, but they knew it was coming. And so there was an awareness and an understanding of what has to happen. And that awareness and understanding was not just at the policymakers level or the healthcare institutions, but to a certain extent, society. And so what you end up with is a compliant group of people when the government says, we need to track and trace whenever you go in, into a building or leave a building, we need you to wear masks when you go outside, we need hand sanitizers everywhere, and this will be managed. Then when you have a compliant population, everybody goes, yep, right, I got it. And these countries have seems to have done very well in managing this. So, you know, if I look at Singapore, where I am, you know, you've got five plus million people. And if I compare it to New Zealand at home, okay, slightly less, but roughly the same population. The difference is, for those of anybody that knows New Zealand geography, Singapore is about the same size landmass as Lake Taupo yeah. in New Zealand. New Zealand's very big. So, you know, right. exactly. But yeah. the population density here in Singapore is phenomenal compared to New Zealand with similar size populations. Both countries have managed it very, very well. But you can imagine the coordination needed here in Singapore that the government has managed our way through has been absolutely tremendous. So there's a lot of moving parts, but fundamental health in the healthcare system itself before you start is has been key. And then I think coordinated decision-making and awareness in the public arena of how important these things are. In the same conversation, Lance shared with us what New Zealand-shaped leadership might be. And in a really insightful and indeed a much talked about episode, he talks about number eight gauge wire or the gauge of wire in New Zealand and why that is interesting from a leadership point of view. Have a listen. My view is having met many New Zealand leaders around Asia, there is something special, something different, something grounded about a leader who comes out of New Zealand. And I don't know why that actually is, but I, I, I just notice it. When you think of world leaders today, Jacinda Ardern is clearly... Um, one of the top two famous leaders in the world, the other being a former president. Jacinda's probably the second most famous. And she's not the first really experienced female prime minister in New Zealand. So what is it about New Zealand, Lance, in your experience that shapes people and then shapes leadership when they leave New Zealand and go elsewhere? It, it's an interesting question, Pod, and something I've thought a lot about. Again, it has having a passion for New Zealand, I'd love to be able to give back in some way. And and even when I go back and I and I sit down with my with my children, and for example, sit with my son and and his crew, you know what I notice. And he's a builder, and you, you know you sit and you have a chat to these guys, and my daughter as well. And there is a fundamental ease of moving into solving problems. That's one thing that I've observed over time that somehow exists in the Kiwi mentality. I don't think it's exclusive to New Zealand, as passionate as I am about the country. I think, you know, I don't think that's something that is exclusive to New Zealand. But I think it is something that comes a little bit in our DNA, as we might say. I mean, there's there's a saying that that, that people may have heard, you know, the, this New Zealand number eight fencing wire mentality. And for those that don't know it, right, number eight fencing wire is the gauge of wire that is used in farm fences and has been for years. And there's the old adage that goes, you know, you give a Kiwi a piece of number eight fencing wire and he'll fix anything. And obviously that's a bit of an exaggeration, but there is this mentality that goes, well, for some reason, there's not a constraint to being able to do something. People don't go, oh, I can't fix that because I don't have that degree. Mm-hmm. 
No, there's a problem to be solved, get on and solve it. So what you find is you have a lot of people in New Zealand who are very pragmatic, very practical. And I think that's something that is inherent in the New Zealand environment. Now, then maybe when you export that in terms of leadership, and and I can only speak for my own journey, but I think that serves you very well. And you don't even necessarily know you have this, to be honest. So I think I think that serves you very well. However, there are some downsides as well. And I, again, I, I can only speak for my own journey, but I think one of the things that becomes very apparent when you leave New Zealand is the reason why you, you are comfortable solving problems and moving into that space very freely is because you're used to having to do things on your own. The, you know, the nearest country's two and a half hours flight away in Australia. And beyond that, hey, the world might as well be on Mars, right? So you're used to being independent. But then when you move out into the wider world, one of the things that I struggled with was actually that bigger picture, having that situational awareness that there was there is much more going on than just the problem I'm trying to solve here. So I think that there's something in this about this problem-solving thing, and it is extremely valuable but it's not everything that the recipe needs. And that's something that I've learned completely, along the way. completely agree with you. And, and I would say to you, if we, we spoke about the, the respect for history and eldership a few minutes ago, I think the combination of the respect for others, particularly history and the practical solving, gives that combination of groundedness that I suspect is what emerges in, in, in that leadership piece. Mm-hmm. And one, one without the other is probably less effective, but both together becomes quite an interesting, important combination. Mm-hmm. And there is, you know, I don't, I don't like stereotypes, but often there's some some element of truth in them as well. I mean, there's the old stereotype, you know, the Kiwi will sit there and not say much, and just go and get it done. And again, not exclusive to New Zealand, but I think that is somehow in there. It's about getting done what needs to be done. We're not great at standing up there and doing three-hour speeches and PowerPoints and all of that. So you've got to learn that as a Kiwi, actually. And it's something that in an international career, you've got to learn and you've got to embrace it as well. Otherwise, that skill that got you started will not take you forward. Skipping our way from New Zealand over to Brazil, Eduardo Tuller shared a really interesting and much commented on episode where he very courageously took a step down from his role of CEO in an organization called Catho, because he felt that he was no longer as interested in the role as he might have been, and therefore probably was not as adding as much value as he might do. And he ended up taking a 10-month sabbatical. In this conversation, he shares with us the reasons that led up to that decision and the benefits he got from the sabbatical. Many people dream of taking a 10-month sabbatical, but few people realize it. Yes, you held a CEO role when you decided to do just that. Tell us how does someone arrive at a decision to take 10 months off and travel the world? It was a very intense decision. I think the main reason to get there was the CEO job is a very demanding job. So from the emotional perspective, there was some tiredness. I did that for between four and five years. And at some point, I realized that taking a break and having more time with the family would be a great way to re-energize. Also, from the job perspective, I felt like I was probably adding less to the job over the years. So helping a new person take that position would probably be the best thing for the company. So there was some soul searching, some work with my potential successors, some discussion with company that with the investors, and we got to this good plan. So I had a somewhat long handover. It took me six months to get the successor ready to go. And in the meantime, I started dreaming of the trip. But it was a very good experience. That's a very courageous thing you've just admitted there. The idea that you recognize that maybe you were adding less value and then maybe it's time for you to vacate the role and at the same time be very honest and transparent with the organization so you can get a successor in place. That seems like a, a very transparent conversations you had leading up to your decision to vacate. Thank you. Yeah, I think I read this great topic that the higher up, the higher you chain you get. The more important is the self-awareness. I think a leader with little self-awareness can disrupt a lot. So this idea that you keep thinking about what's the, what are the key next steps for the company and how can you help with it were important. And better understanding Cato's business was one of the good things I think I added to the business. But at some point, the execution for the steps ahead was just something that I think I could help with, but I was probably not the, the best person to execute. 
Coming back off a sabbatical, Eduardo has now moved to a different organization, is working in Portugal, where he's transitioned successfully from one country and one nationality to, to a different type. And the notion of transitions is a topic that regularly comes up on this podcast. We hope you're enjoying this episode of The Leadership Diet. Feel free to hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast player you are listening to this on. Reviews on iTunes and Spotify are greatly appreciated. Moving from one function role to a different role often requires a different style of leadership or at least understanding the context from our leadership has changed. Therefore, where I spend my time, how I spend my time, how I impact the people around me might also need to change. Michael Inchinski is currently the CEO of Redbubble. Before that, he worked in a range of different roles within the Sikh group out of Melbourne in Australia. In this clip, Michael talks about his first major transition moving from leading a team of strategists to a team of product engineers and the impact he had, which was not the impact he had hoped to have. I think in hindsight, Padraig, that was probably the hardest single leadership transition that, that I've done. I you know, went from running a sort of 10-person all-strategy team to about 160-odd people that worked across products, engineering, technology, as well as the, the strategy team. And the reason I say it was the hardest transition is because it took me quite some time to realize the change in style that I needed to have from going from being the functional expert running a function that I really knew deeply and I, I had done the job of my whole team before to running people who I could never have their technical knowledge. I'd never have their depth of understanding of their area and their craft and learning that that required a very different management style. I mean, it's obvious when you talk about it, but actually living it day to day, it took me quite some time to even just the way that I ran a meeting, the way that I challenged, the way that I debated, that had to be different in that environment because the personalities, the skills, and even the extroversion, introversion sort of styles were quite different. And, And it took me quite some time and I probably struggled to really accept that it was me that needed to change as opposed to it was the team that needed to adapt to my style. Can you tell us what those style differences are or were in terms of you said you had to change your style from someone you knew really, really well because you were that person relative to someone who you'd never done their role? Because I hadn't done their role, yes, my, my job is to help us all get aligned on the strategy and help people understand what that meant for their areas. But I really love to run a business where the whole team contributes and the whole team can debate ideas. And coming up from a pure strategy area, that debate was very rigorous and very direct. And, you know, I could throw out a challenge to someone's point and I would get a very well-structured three points back onto here's why this is the right, here's my three data points that supported the position I just made to you. And then if I'm moving and all of a sudden I'm talking to someone who's come from a non-strategy background, they know their area better than me, but they may not be as trained or as skilled in being able to just off the top of their heads, give the three data points as to why this is the right thing to do. If I'm challenging them in the same way, that that could be a pretty awkward or uncomfortable situation or it was, Mm -hmm. and they might struggle to come up off the top of their head. Mm -hmm. And then I might lose confidence in them and think, well, maybe we shouldn't do that. And that's wrong. That's poor leadership. It's not inclusive. I'm not getting the best out of them for sure. And, and so that was, that was one of the key aspects that I needed to change, the way that I brought people into the discussion, the way that I was able to get out their views and their opinions, the way that I was able to challenge them but in a way where they're able to think and respond in a way that suited their personality and their training and their background. That actually took me quite a bit of time to adapt my style, to, to realize that, to be able to get the best out of each member of the team. Do you remember what you did to help you to move towards a more inclusive style or just just to remember that I'm dealing with someone who may not be trained in strategic debate, as an example. It was some pretty tough feedback, doing 360-degree feedback from my team and recognizing sort of the, the dissatisfaction with the interactions. So they weren't dissatisfied with me as a person or, or with where we were heading, but they would really weren't comfortable and weren't enjoying the interactions. And I took that quite personally because that really hit who I wanted to be as a leader and how I viewed myself. And then when I got that feedback again, sort of six months later, and there hadn't been a movement, I think it took those two lots of very honest 360 feedback from the team saying, look, you know, we like you as a person, but gee, these interactions are not working and I'm not comfortable and I don't enjoy it. And you're like, oh, that's the last, that was, it was very confronting for me because it hit my self image. And probably after the first one, I sort of dismissed it a little bit and gave a lip service. And after the second one, I think that's when the penny dropped and I had to make a real commitment to realize it was me that was the problem here. And it's my job here to change and adapt and be much more inclusive in the way that I lead so that I would be able to get the best out of people with very different training and very different styles. Stuart Elmsley is the CEO 
of Open University Australia. And in my interview with Stuart, we discussed many things, including team identity and the shift in the leadership team that he is leading in Open University Australia. And he describes the identity change along the way as he and the team have been undergoing some development work together. If you think about your, your own role there from, as you said, someone who was very comfortable in and very experienced in, you know, the, the golfing metaphor. So now has got to become soccer team manager and, and coach. And <laughs> uh, there's a transition for you in, in that process that you're also asking everyone else to do. What have you had to change or develop or uh, expand in yourself in order to move into that soccer team leadership role? Well, a lot of that's about leading by example. I think that you've got to be the one, particularly if you're in the CEO role, you've got to be the one that is, is seen to be taking the first steps in, in terms of being vulnerable, in terms of being willing to, to walk the walk as, as much as talk the talk. And, uh, and that's been a huge journey for me because I think, you know, prior to this experience of leadership, I've very much had a, a sort of a modus operandi of, of keeping my work and my personal lives very separate. I've been quite a private person, but I think if you want to work in a team that works effectively cross-functionally as a team, um, you've got to give more of yourself and um, you've got to be very vulnerable. You've got to be open to learning. You've got to be a lot more self-aware and be seen to be investing in your growth, be seen to be doing the sorts of things that you're asking others to, to also take the time to do. And so, yeah, my journey, it's never comfortable, but often growth is not comfortable, right? As you'd expect, COVID-19 still permeates many leadership-oriented conversations because it permeates much of our lives and it will for the next short while, I would imagine. But in this particular conversation with Lance Little, we discuss what learnings he has had by watching multiple countries across the Asia-Pacific region collaborate in trying to find new solutions to combat this pandemic. Another thing I heard you talking about elsewhere when, when you're discussing the last 12 months, you're observing that you noticed countries collaborating with each other in ways they hadn't done before, or indeed companies collaborating with each other, mm. with their competitors in order to solve this issue. That's not unique, I suppose, but it's happening on a worldwide scale to a level we probably haven't seen before. I suppose the question is, what's led to the leaders of either the countries or companies to realizing we can do better if we compete, if we collaborate with our competitors as opposed to try and go alone. Mm. I think like many things that COVID has done is it's forced an issue. You know, the uptake of digital tools is another one. I mean, we're doing this digitally and we could have done this in the past digitally, but we didn't for whatever reason. The technology was there. And, and so I think what COVID has done is, is the magnitude of the problem was so big that it became, it was very clear very quickly that no single entity could solve this thing on their own. So you have to work together. And I think that's just because the scale of the problem was so much more severe. Well, in some cases still is, I have to be careful. I mean, it's not under control yet. It's so much more severe than many of the problems that we live with day in, day out. Now, you can argue that you can take state, uh, statistics and data, and maybe we should have this approach for many other challenges that we face in health and, and in other areas. I mean, you know, you, you could argue the, you know, the climate challenge that we're facing at the moment and the direction we're going there is even more important. And so we should adopt a similar collaborative approach to dealing with that. Yeah, yeah, because no one's solving it right now by themselves, are no, they? So it no. needs something else. And, yeah. and as somebody once said to me, the planet will survive. That's the wrong That's the wrong state. We need to save the planet. Actually, the planet will survive. Uh, those of us living on it may yeah, exactly. be in a different boat. <laughs> Staying in the broader healthcare arena for the moment, Rachel Frisberg from Roche Pharmaceuticals has shared with us why the company, which is over 125 years old, had to change. And moving from an internal view to an external view has led the organization to shift the way it thinks, shift the way it goes to market, and shifts the way it leads. And in this conversation, Rachel talks about scaling leadership and how she had to change the way she led as the organization changed the way it led there's a 125 year old organization and a little bit of what got you there won't get you here mm -hmm. and we really needed to shift and change and so i think we also realized that there was a lot of 
time that was being spent on things that were actually focused internally into the organization as opposed to externally. And so it was that realization that, you know, particularly with knowing that we would have more innovation and more medicines coming and many more medicines, you know, at that time, I think we had, it was, you know, we'd gone from three major medicines to six and then now our portfolio is almost going to be coming to 19 different medicines in a couple of years to come. Right that we needed to change the way that we operate if we wanted to have this impact for patients and so on. And Richard, and so those, just, just, on. just to clarify for folks who don't have much insight to the pharmaceutical industry, when you say get our medications or our products to patients faster, what does faster mean? And do you mean through the whole supply chain or do you mean through from R&D in, into, into regulatory <laughs> or, or what does faster mean? Actually, it's probably all of the all above, above, to be honest. <laughs> I know, but that, so it, it is... Part of it is in certain parts of the organization from a developmental perspective, you know, how do we, the way that trial designs were, you know, were being done was shifting and changing because, of course, development of a medicine can take up to 10 years. So people can't wait that long yeah. in the end, you know. So, so that was an aspect. I think it was also, as I say, that there were, there were aspects within the healthcare systems you know, that you can, you, we can have a medicine that can get approval from a regulatory process, but then also we need to ensure that patients can get access through reimbursement as well. And sometimes that wasn't happening. So it's, it's, it's along the whole spectrum. And even more recently, you know, with, with COVID, there's this other element as well that we've seen where we've needed to adapt and change is because there was the fear of going into the hospitals because, some patients who might have more chronic diseases like cancer and so on, they would be needing to think about, well, if I go into the hospital, will I actually um, then get COVID? And so then we were needed to think quite quickly about how do we change the way that we get the, the medicine to the patient. So, many different ways that we need to think around speeding that up, to be wow. honest. One of the reasons people seem to like this podcast is because it is up close and very intimate with senior executive leaders who are sharing their learnings, their journeys, and sometimes their mistakes. And season two was no exception. Each leader talked about their own experiences and in doing so shared stories that illuminate some of the interesting and occasionally hurtful or difficult learnings they've had along the way. But ultimately, those learnings or insights have led them to be a far more effective leader. In this conversation, Alex Condolian, who we met earlier, talks about arrogance and his initial doses of arrogance and how that impacted team development to what he talks about today. Then you you talked about, you know, you were young and therefore you're also energetic and you're used to making decisions and brash and arrogance comes with that. One of the unexpected downsides a lot of leaders find out is that their arrogance results in lack of clarity for their team or indeed domineering for their team and therefore the team can't grow and develop. Your realization was that change the team is easy, but development is very, very hard. And then that, that takes effort. That sounds like that was a pretty pivotal moment for you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, I mean, I think that, I, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about China in a little bit, but when I left Australia and I got to China, I had a mammoth task of building a completely new organization in a country where the function that I was in didn't even exist. So my only choice was to develop, right? right? And that's where I think I started to realize, wow, this works. Maybe this actually works better. (laughs) (laughs) And certainly took me back to that moment where, you know, I had taken on more pressure in the job that we're talking about in Australia than what I needed to, to achieve the results mm-hmm. that I wanted to achieve. Mm-hmm. Because that burden of changing that team, which of course is uncomfortable for the team you're working with individually, it's mm-hmm. uncomfortable for them collectively. And in the interim, while you're trying to rebuild everything, all the pressure lands on you. Well, that's a mixed recipe, right? I yeah. mean, if you yeah. really have to do it, fine. And you know, I'll hear some people say, if you want cultural change, change the people. I don't buy into it. I mean, I I think if you want cultural change, work out what the right leadership approach is. Don't give up. 
keep going, you're going to come across some roadblocks which genuinely may be insurmountable and you may have to make a personnel change. But most of the time, I suspect that won't be needed. And, you know, I think that that is something which against the value now hold, which it doesn't mean my values have changed. It just means yeah. I have a wisdom that yeah, I've yeah, learned yeah. Yeah. is really important to me and is, is something which I think I can now offer teams that I work with. Anybody who is living in the broader Asia-Pacific area would be familiar with the name Fairfax. It is up there with the name Murdoch, with the name Rothschild. The Fairfax family are a very famous and long-standing traditional conglomerate family of businesses. And in this very insightful interview, Warwick Fairfax shared with us many insights on his experience in being born into such a family like that, but also some of the mistakes he made as the leader of the organization. We discuss humiliation, and in this topic, Warwick shared with us how he overcame what, in hindsight, was a very public, humbling moment of he leading the organization into a dire consequence. A lot of work that I do is helping executives to perform as best they can, but sometimes it's about making sense of events that they haven't done well, so therefore they can learn. And your trauma is often described as the most stressful events in your life. And in the corporate world, reputational trauma is, is I think, the, the, you know, the mm-hmm. most impactful of that. Most execs will always make a mistake. The more senior you get, the bigger the ripple effect of, of that mistake. But few people do that in a very public manner. So uh, I'm, I'm keen to hear from you in terms of you were in that moment. Uh, the, you know, the business was put into receivership. You were 30. It was very publicly, I would imagine, humiliating. But I don't know that. Mm-hmm. What was that like for you in that moment with, with the benefit of hindsight now? Yeah, I mean, it was excruciatingly painful. It wasn't so much the loss of money on paper that I could have had, because for whatever reason, money has never been a motivator for me. It's just, it's not like I like poverty. I mean, I like to be comfortable. I don't, I'm not against, you know, going to a nice hotel or whatever, but you know, it's not a motivator for me. It was more the fact that I'd let my dad down, my parents down. I'd let John Fairfax down, a person of faith that was important to me. And in some weird and poor theological construct, I felt like I'd let God down. I felt in my naivety and stupidity, God had a plan to maybe resurrect the company, at least in terms of how other people were treated so badly. But it's just, this was my thought, oh, I'm a person of faith. He's a person of faith. Somehow, maybe, you know, that was God's plan for me to be a leading figure there. And so feeling like I'd broken or destroyed God's plan. And yes, you know, while People didn't think I, you know, was a murderer, liar, cheat, steal, or anything like that. It was certainly this sense of, you know, young, naive, hot-headed kid could have had it all and blew it. So, yes, my self-respect was low, understandably. I don't criticize the media, whatever, for not, for, you know, blaming me for what happened. And it was more complicated. It was all my fault, but largely my fault. So, yes, there was a sense of humiliation, but it was just a sense of, what do I do now? I've just destroyed my birthright. I've caused friction within the family. Certainly didn't help. While the company went on, there've been books written since, as you probably know, two or three saying if, if the family had maintained control, somehow magically, John Fairfax Limited would be thriving, mm-hmm. you know, and I think it's a little simplistic because, you know, everybody missed the whole internet advertising, yeah. you know, Washington Post everywhere. And, so would we have done any better? It's hard to see that we would have succeeded where everybody else failed, but whatever. It's another cross, I suppose. People said, not only am I responsible for what happened, you're responsible for the you know, last 20, 25 years. <laughs> it's, I think it's really? slightly unfair. <laughs> the irony is you know, that the business went, went, went back on the market, of, I think it was five years later, and it was delisted almost uh, 30 years later again uh, after yeah. merger with Nine. So you know, history repeats itself in, in, in many, many cycles. So I think it's unfair it to suggest you caused it the next 30 years there, Warwick. <laughs> well, yeah, but yeah, it was certainly... It was just difficult, just this decimation to my sense of self-respect, morale. It was extremely, uh, it, uh, it was tough. I mean, I had Oxford Harvard Business School reunions over the years, and it was years before I would go to one because I felt like, how can I hold my head up? I mean, yeah. I would just say, you, what are you doing here? Richard Neal 
is a CEO of a very successful construction firm in the UK. And in our conversation, he shared many of his insights from moving from England to the UK and getting started in that market to becoming a CEO of a listed organization and leaving that within 12 months, not by his own choice, but then leading an MBO into the organization that he's currently in and loving that. But in that conversation, he also shared this idea of, in his experience, the more confident the leader is, the more able they are to take advice and indeed ask for advice. I love the juxtaposition between be confident and taking advice because it's kind of a, an irony that sits with that. Yet my own experience is folks who are really, really confident themselves are very, very happy to take advice. And it, it kind of goes to what you just said about asking questions. Yet I, my experience, my experience is a lot of leaders want to show up knowing as if they know the answers and then therefore they are less open for other people's perspectives. But what you're saying is the opposite. Be very confident in asking for advice and therefore multiple perspectives. Completely, com- completely. I guess where that comes from in my regard, I'm a bit of a reluctant, I don't like even saying it, you know, we've been in, in a relative way being re- relatively successful. We're happy, we're healthy, we've, we've got nice stuff. And however you want to measure that, it's worked out really well. In terms of work, you know, I've been in a senior position for sort of ever. I, our, our first, I was running a business, a reasonably large business before our management buyout, our first buyout in 2004. So for the last 20 odd years, I've been in a pretty senior position. So I've been the boss for long enough that it doesn't matter anymore. Mm. You are the boss and you act like the boss. And you, when you go to events, when you go to places, when you sit in meetings, when you talk to you people, mm. You are that person already. So the, the smart thing to do is not need to be the boss mm-hmm. because you are already mm-hmm. and you have got more experience and you have, you have got a way of looking for things and you've got that, that weird wisdom thing. And I don't know where that came from, but you've sort of got that. And so the one thing you definitely don't need to do is be the boss. Mm-hmm. And I find that that disrupts the landscape. Terrifically, because people go, oh, this person is prepared to listen. You know, I caveat a lot of what I say with, look, what, what do I know? But from my perspective, it feels like something like this. What are you guys thinking about this? And that's quite disarming, but it also changes the whole dynamic. And the businesses I'm involved with are not, don't have hierarchies, don't have, I'll, I'll make the call. I'll always make the call, but it's after we've had the discussion. Jumping across the ditch to North America, Craig Masters, a recent guest on this podcast also shared some tough moments that he experienced while leading an insurance organization out of Atlanta. In this very funny metaphor, as he describes himself hearing some news on the radio that ultimately led to his whole industry having to change and pivot very fast, he describes what he calls the thumb-sucking moment lying in the fetal position that CEOs often find themselves in. Well, if the last 18 months hasn't taught everybody that that disruption occurs when you least expect it, I think we all know now that it does. Uh, Can can I I take you back to, you know, the first few weeks or months when you started realizing the business as I knew it won't survive if you keep doing what we are, were doing. What were those early realizations for you? And, and indeed, what were the kind of the, oh my God moments for you as you were, as you realized that? I was going to ask you after I got over the panic, but again, not to be too dramatic because it is insurance, right? But but here's the story. I mean, this thing called predatory lending was a big deal in the States and it was mostly driven by, remember, Citibank in the US was the biggest consumer lender. So Sandy Weil, the CEO of Citibank at that time, they were getting, in a, they were getting a lot of criticism about predatory lending. Well, we sold our credit insurance with those loans. So literally, I get up one day and watching the little news feed in the morning, and there's Sandy Weil on TV telling the whole world, the problem isn't our lending practice, it's this thing called credit insurance. So we're just going to stop selling that and this whole problem will go away. Well, you can imagine that's a really bad cup of coffee moment, right? When you're sitting there with a company that has nothing to do with it, great products, and you've got this guy saying, we're just throwing this under the bus to try to sweep it away. So that was my moment of a big rut row, as I would call it, like we've got a problem. And of course, everybody followed at that point. And the first lesson I learned to answer your question specifically is, wow, we've got it. We're, we're at a fork in the road here. I mean, I can keep panicking, which I was in my office. I call it the, uh, the some thumb sucking fetal yes. position that CEOs yes. get in when we don't know what to closed. do. And that was me curled up in the corner. There's a visual for you, but that's what we do. 
So I can either keep doing that or we go get our team in a room and we lock the door until we figure out what to go do next and how to communicate what we're going to do next. So we took choice B. Now that was a bumpy road, but that that's, and I remember it like it was yesterday. This was a while ago, but that was, uh, uh, I will never forget it. And now uh, those are my first few days of that saga. So when you are in that, uh, and I appreciate it, it's a metaphorical image, but it's a powerful one nonetheless, <laughs> yeah, in that thumb-sucking moment. How, how, how does anyone, but how did you specifically you know, garner the courage to go, we need to do something different. We, we have no choice here, but we need to do something different. And none of us know what that is yet. Yeah. So here, here, here's the, the, the super transparent answer to that, which I try to be, by the way. I never understood at that point as a CEO, I should have been thinking about all these things. Right. I mean, the reality is I should have had a plan B or C for the company already. You know, if this product line goes away, but we were living large, quite frankly, we were growing double digits, we're making money, people are getting bonuses, you know, you're getting accolades. And so I did it because I had to. (laughs) All right. I mean, you wake up to that news, you have to go figure it out. So I don't want to say that I was out in front of this and super smart strategically. But what it did teach me was to never be in that position again. Returning to Stuart from Open Universities Australia. In this conversation, Stuart shared with us his insights and his approach to giving feedback over the last two or three years and the impact that is having now both on himself as well as the recipients who receive that feedback and the changes his leadership is having by taking a more questioning approach and indeed a more curious approach as opposed to walk into the room with the answer already decided. I realized that I wasn't probably as proficient in in feedback as I needed to be. Again, coming out of that kind of correcting from being familiar with a leadership model around experts rather than those that are sort of learners and and, and curious. And so I, I started to approach feedback more from the perspective of curiosity rather than from the perspective of criticism. And I think the approach that's probably worked for me more effectively is from the point of view of, of really just questioning. So feedback that is seeking to understand in some more depth, the way that sort of people are behaving or way that they're responding or what's driving their motivations, mm-hmm. you know, adopting a curiosity to, to what's making people tick or act in certain ways or perform in certain ways has, I think, uncovered a, a level of genuine interest and, and authenticity from the recipient. You know, it's not... I'm bringing judgment to the feedback. I'm, I'm trying to understand ultimately where they are in, in any given um, situation or experience. And, and that's, that, that's been really helpful because I think from their perspective, it's not been received negatively. You know, this kind of comes through experience and time. I think you, you, what we've been able to develop as a, as a leadership group is a sense of trust amongst ourselves. You know, you sort of start out talking about the team that you want to be, type of team that you want to be, the the values that you have, how you see those values show up in behaviours. And and that all sounds good and it reads well on paper and it reads well in your team charter. But until you've gone around the block, I think a couple of times and have the lived experience of putting those things into practice, you haven't actually notched up the runs of trust. And I think once those runs have started to be notched up, you can then sort of build on those and, and, you know, and, and leverage those more effectively in, in terms of learning and growing and understanding and curiosity. Because, you know, I mean, ultimately, I'm a big believer in getting there together as a team, big believer in better outcomes are achieved when we're working effectively and, um, and we're aligned and, helping each other. And um, so buy-in is is super important for me. And so if I'm seeing that there are challenges, either negative or positive, that uh, I'm wanting to understand more or bring attention to more, then, you know, I'll I'll come at it from that point of view. So I think questioning is very powerful in, in the space of feedback. I love what you said about curiosity. It's very, very difficult to be cynical, sarcastic, or judgmental if you start it from a place of curiosity. Yes. It's just, it's the antidote to it. And, and if you're curious, then by nature, you're, you're trying to understand someone else's intention as opposed to judge their behavior. You also give them the opportunity to articulate it in their own words. If you show up to something like feedback with the perspective that you're right, then that's a very entrenched 
position. And I don't know that it's always that helpful. Um, <laughs> and my experience is that it's not that helpful very, very often. So, yeah, so approaching it from understanding and, and curiosity, I think, is, is very powerful because it also gives you the ability to, to move with the new information as it's presented to you, right? Mm. So, you know, you, you want to sort of keep your options open and, and make sure that you're not unnecessarily going off half-cocked. It is hard to talk about leadership without talking about failures. And this podcast, one of its core reasons for being is to have real conversations with real leaders on their real learning. And by nature, that means uncovering some moments of difficulty, including moments of failure. Warwick Fairfax, who we met earlier in this episode, shared with us the moments of taking over the famous Fairfax organization and delisting it off the Australian share market in 1987, only to face the famous crash and recession that followed a few months later. And what happened with that? This is a really personal and a great sharing of that notion of failure. Thank you, Warwick. Yeah, I mean, basically, once I launched it, some other family members sold out the major ones. They didn't want to be trapped in a private company controlled by a then 26-year-old, which is completely understandable, I have to say. Yeah. You know, don't blame them at all for that uh, conclusion. Uh, and that and the, and the October 87 stock market crash meant that our asset sale program was hurt by that. So by the end of 87, we had an unsustainable level of debt. So yes, I brought in new management that in the first year increased operating profits by 80%. Wow. So you could say objectively, yeah, very successful. maybe my conclusion that the company wasn't as well managed as it could be, maybe there was some merit to that argument. The problem was the debt was so high, mm-hmm. it didn't matter what management did. It was just, you know, it was just unsustainable. So then in 1990, Australia got in a pretty significant recession. Newspaper revenues, which are really driven by classifieds, at least back then, yeah. anyway, they were. They what this is before online yeah. ads, you know. <laughs> cars, uh, employment, it was all, you know, in the Sydney Morning Herald. Well, the revenues were decimated by the recession. When you've got so much debt, you have no room for maneuver. And so then we were forced to declare bankruptcy in December 1990. So really, you know, we were almost doomed before we started. Once I launched that takeover, in reality, it would have needed everything to go right, you know? Mm -hmm. We would have need like four races and poker. I mean, you would have need, you would have almost needed perfection, which can happen, but perfection is typically not a good business strategy. We mentioned Richard earlier, Richard Neal from the UK. In this conversation, Richard shares with us the moment where he was headhunted to become the CEO of a listed organization in the UK. And within a few minutes of arriving in his new role, realizing, oops, I've made a mistake and being very publicly fired from that role a year later. It did lead to moments of joy, albeit not exactly in the first moment. It was a mistake within, I would say, half an hour of getting to the (laughs) organisation. It's sort of really funny looking back, and it was one of the best things that ever happened to me, Pod. but, you know, that's my nature. I'll turn those things into a positive somehow, but it really was. Yeah, so headhunted away, someone got through through the barriers and, got me on the phone, told me I was brilliant, met them a couple of times. I'd done reasonably well with with Jackson's at that stage and it seemed natural, maybe on the back of the sort of conversation I was just having, it seemed natural that I go and take over an even bigger business. Jackson's at that stage were a listed business, so they were a public business and a private business and I didn't know the difference between the two and I went to an even bigger one. And and the penny dropped when I'd not been to their organisation because it was one of these ones where they parachuted me in, but the guy who I took over from wasn't aware during the interview process that he wasn't going to be there. And I feel terrible about that. I would never be involved in one of them again because that was wrong. But anyway, they told me he was rubbish and I was brilliant and I went down there and I remember they had, I was in one of the director's suites Mm. of the organisation and there was another one for even bigger directors and they had a punch code on the door. And I sat down and I went, this is uncomfortable. And I sat for about a quarter of an hour and I spoke to to my whatever PA secretary at the time, and which I feel, again, I'm old school. You don't have any of them anymore. I said, where's the gang? Where, where are my people? And they said, really? And I, they said, oh, well, you could go up and talk to some of them. And I was later told that a boss had not been on that floor for something like 18 months. Wow. 
And I went, oh, so yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a leap of faith to realize, wow, I am in the wrong place. But I, I knew they'd find me within a year, which they did. In those days, it was, you had a year before you had to pay loads of money. And I took the year to meet so many people in the industry. I met a lot of people. I, I still hung on to the hope that they would love me eventually because secretly I wanted them to love me, but they didn't. They hated me. They fired me in a, in an old school public hanging. They made me march out of the office with my box front page of our construction news over here and all that sort of thing. And it was horrific, but it was brilliant. It was brilliant. It was exactly what I needed for an overconfident young guy who'd never got it wrong to have your heart ripped out publicly and to come home and to have your wife go, it's okay. We're fine. And that was a big moment because we, we literally, we shopped it. We changed our shopping habits. We didn't spend any money. And I launched the MBO attempt on my old business Along at that stage, yeah. which we managed to pull through in a, just under a year. We made that happen. And, you know, I all my Christmases have come at once ever, ever since, really, to, to be a private business and, and own that business. Lastly, I want to move to the notion of practices. All of our guests on this show have had tough times in their life. All of them have had made mistakes in their leadership journeys, and all of them have developed a sense of practice or practices that have allowed them to overcome those moments and have allowed them to keep growing in their leadership impact and leadership scope as well as scale. In this conversation, Rachel Frisberg shares with us one of the changes she's made to her leadership, and it's the idea of, in her role as a regional-based leader, as in multi-country level leadership, moving away from country views and into more of a collective leadership review has changed some of her practices for the better. You talked about going to country views and having you know 250 slides to pre-read and understand. You don't do that any longer, I take it. No, and and actually the way that we've, I mean, so of course in the last year I've not actually gone out of the country, but but even if I had gone out of the country, it would it would be a different approach, you know, as you say, Pod. So I think there actually the way that we have have changed from these country reviews is you know going away from yeah myself and a couple of others asking lots of questions of the teams. What we've actually done now is is start to bring, for example, our finance managers, our general managers from across the countries together. And we have that dialogue together. And we think around what is it that we need within the Asia Pacific region? And how do we need to be thinking about it from an enterprise perspective in order to have a bigger collective impact? And what is it that we can learn from each other. So it's really shifted from, yes, I guess what could be described as quite a top-down approach to one where, where you're really bringing this collective thinking and collective leadership together. But I think also from a leadership perspective, as you say, when I'm thinking about the, the agile leadership, it comes from, you know, it's more about how do you get out of the way mm-hmm. to enable others to be able to step in and to be able to to really empower people in a way that gives them the power and to lift others up and have that strength that they can bring their real capabilities into the work that needs to get done within an organization. So I think there are some there's some rituals that we've needed to bring in from you know from that agile organization approach, you know, moving towards Kanbans moving towards 90-day cycles, thinking about how we look back at what we've learned and doing retrospectives, but at the same time, also shifting the way that we lead. Stuart from Open University talks about mindfulness and how he's taken up a very proactive daily practice in mindfulness over the last number of years and the impact that has had on him. Yeah, no, I'm a big fan of Sam Harris. So I was a, a fan of Sam Harris as an author. And he then came out with a, 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 a meditation, guided meditation app and resource called Waking Up. 
I subscribe to that. I've been doing that for probably two to three years now. It's just a practice of reflection. As he likes to sort of describe it, it's, it's, it's basically about doing nothing, um, but just observing the notion of doing nothing and, and being able to observe your thoughts as they come and go and, and being very present in the moment. And I, I found it to be of enormous benefit because it helps you to be consciously aware of, I guess, the, you know, the scramble of thoughts that, that, that come and go mm-hmm. within your consciousness at any point in time. And it gives you an opportunity to pause and not be reactive to those. And I've found that in my position, um, particularly in, in terms of you know, leading teams and, and often being put on the spot to think and reflect about different issues and be asked to make decisions and that sort of stuff, the ability to not impulsively react is particularly important, not just from the perspective of the quality of decisions that you can make, but you know, one of the things that I've also just realized as being a, a, a senior leader is that everything about your behavior tends to get picked apart. And so you don't really want to be seen to be reacting unnecessarily. I think that, you know, if you're not kind of conscious of the signals that you're giving off, uh, your facial expressions, thinking out loud unnecessarily, you know, all of those can be cues for others to quickly pick up and run with. And I think developing a level of consciousness about those and self-awareness about those helps you to kind of keep those under control in a way that's measured and, and deliberate. And finally, Michael Inchinski, who's now the CEO of Redbubble, share with us in his conversations the idea of doing evening reflections and driving home after his day at work, dictating into some degree of digital recorder has allowed him to take a very proactive approach to thinking about the day he's just had and preempting what will come his way the next morning. Number one was genuinely accept the need that it was me that needed to change. Uh, Number two was to state that change openly to the team, to say, here's where I am, here's what I've heard, and I genuinely want to be different and I want to be better for you. Then number three, that gave the team permission to give me much more micro feedback on the small little things that were building up to to bigger things. And then fourthly, you know, I got an excellent coach who helped me think about different things. And there was a lot of self-reflection every day, thinking back on every interaction, what went well and what didn't. I would journal in the car on the way home. So I would talk into a voice recorder and talk myself through the day. How did this interaction go? How could I have behaved? Rather than saying there's this big change I tried, needed to make, I tried to focus on really little changes that I need to make. So a simple one that I got feedback on a lot was that if I had a, like a poor meeting, I would carry that meeting into the next meeting right. and people would be able to see it on my face. Mm-hmm. The moment they walked in, they're going, oh, gosh, I've got grumpy Mike because of the previous <laughs> meeting. And that's awful. That is yeah. such terrible leadership. And I didn't really know I was doing it. And so having taken that on, I made an effort to do two things. One, to, to be conscious of that, of dumping the previous meeting. And then did a little simple thing like putting in a 10-minute break into my calendar. So rather than having one meeting that finished at 11 and the next meeting, you know, that started, you know, that moment, have a 10-minute break so that I could clear my head, I could grab a cup of coffee, I could walk around and be conscious of I need to change my mood. So being much more aware of my mood, how I was showing up, how I was presenting myself. Folks, hope you enjoyed that summary of the Leadership Diet Season 2. There's a lot more in the whole season. We haven't included every guest on this particular episode, so feel free to dip back to some of the ones we have highlighted here, or indeed some of the ones who haven't quite made it. Going back to my upfront request, anybody who would love to give us a review on Apple, that would be much appreciated because that is what does the most work in terms of highlighting this podcast to people who have not heard it before. We are currently recording Season 3. Look forward to bringing you that in a few weeks' time. We have folks who have been experienced at CEO level all over the world, folks who are experts in teaching at business schools such as Harvard, and a whole lot more. Can't wait for you to join us.